From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll tell you all about WUWM's approach to covering this year's elections. Then we'll learn how the Manfred Olson Planetarium at UWM is celebrating the Lunar New Year. We're hoping to almost literally transport ourselves to China so that we can hear about the preparations for the Lunar New Year, but also imagine that we can pop outside and see what the sky looks like. We'll explore three books to read for Black History Month. There are so many books. Um, if, the, if the listeners <laughs> could, could see my office, they, could, they would see the shelves, all the books on, on, on my bookshelf. Plus, we'll learn about a new takeout restaurant in Bayview, specializing in fried Asian food. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be a big year in politics. There are a number of local elections happening, and of course, there's the presidential election in November. Ahead of that, Milwaukee will host the Republican National Convention, so there will be a lot of attention on Wisconsin. We also play a key role in determining the outcome of the presidential race as a deeply purple state. And that's why we're focusing on you in 2024. To explain our approach to elections this year and what you can expect from WUWM, I'm joined by Lake Effect Sam Woods and Emily Files from the WUWM News Team. Emily, do you want to start off by talking about how we're shaping our election coverage? Right. So like you said, we're focusing on you. We're focusing on the community and the listeners. So a lot of election coverage you see is sort of horse race, who's leading in the polls, who's in, how, who's out type of story. But we want to be more responsive this year to what our community wants to know. We want to answer questions about voting, about the RNC, about candidates and issues. Basically, we want to create information that's actually useful to people. Yeah, Emily is spot on about our goals, Joy. Uh, As journalists, part of our job is to maintain a sustained dialogue between you and people in positions of power. Um, You know, our mission for election coverage is to equip uh, Milwaukee area residents to make decisions that affect change. And what that means for um, this election season is that as we gear up uh, for this election season, politicians want us to be talking about their messages and their platform, right? They're going to want to stay on message and um, tell us what what is important, right? But what we want is for politicians to be addressing concerns that you already have, uh, not telling you what you should be concerned about. Um, but in order to do this, we need uh, your guidance on what issues you want us to be asking about. So one way that we're doing that is through this election survey that is publicly accessible on our website. Yeah, this is really exciting. So this is the first time in my five years here that we've done this kind of broad outreach using a survey. Um, So it started out as a way to gather information about how Wisconsinites are feeling about the presidential election in November. And it still is about that, but we also want to hear from people about local issues and local election questions. So when people fill out this survey, it'll help steer what questions we're trying to answer in our coverage and what voices we have on the air. Yeah, it's really a direct line between people in the community and WUWM. I mean, you get to tell us directly what you care about and what you want to know 
going into these elections. So in some cases, we might contact voters for interviews. That is, of course, completely up to each person, whether they want to participate. Uh, for example, it it's someone who voted for Biden in the past, but they're not sure whether they'll vote for him again. We might reach out to them for a story about people who are on the fence about the candidates. Right. So it's a way for us to steer our election coverage, but then also find people to talk to, find Wisconsin voters who um, have stories to share. And undecided voters are actually who we're looking for for one of the other projects we're working on this year. We want to hold voter roundtable discussions where we talk in depth with voters about what's driving their decisions, what are they torn about. And we especially want to include undecided voters because elections are so close in Wisconsin. It's the undecided voters who might determine the result. Yeah, and the roundtable idea, I think, is a way of getting beyond the sound bites that you hear um, in a typical radio story. You know, it's it's rare for someone's full political viewpoints and nuances to be summarized in a 10-second soundbite. Um, people are more complex than that, typically. I know I like to think of myself as more complex than that. Um, so these roundtable conversations will let us dig into what people are thinking um, and hopefully help people with conflicting experiences understand each other a little better. And another project we're working on is something that we've done before, a voter guide. Right. So the voter guide is basically a resource for people to answer any question they might have ahead of an election. How to register to vote? Who will be on the ballot? What does the Milwaukee Common Council do? What does the comptroller do? <laughs> these, you know, these people's names and positions who you might see on the ballot and you're like, who is this person and why should I care about this election? We want to be able to answer those questions in our voter guide. We want to hear from the public about what questions they have that we can help answer in the voter guide. So you can submit those questions by filling out the election survey on our website. That is wuwm.com. And I want to stress that we are truly committed to using your responses to that survey to shape our election coverage. And one way that we want to do that is through explainer stories. Yeah, so we've received a lot of questions from uh, the survey respondents so far, and we're going to try and answer as many of them as we can. For instance, tomorrow I'll be giving an overview of what exactly is on Milwaukee's primary election ballot on February 20th. And you'll also hear stories about the mechanics of voting, basically anything you need to know before you head to the polls or vote absentee. And you'll also be hearing some basic voting information throughout the day on WUWM, not just during morning edition and lake effect. And that's to try to reach as many ears as we can. So we're looking at what questions are submitted through the election survey and doing stories based on what people want to know about. I'm actually doing a short series right now that's explaining what's going on with redistricting because we just got so many questions about what's going on with that and how it'll impact voters and the elections. It's a very confusing situation that keeps moving. Uh, so we'll provide the latest information on the redistricting process, and we'll answer some of the specific questions that we've gotten from the survey. You can hear that tomorrow and for the next uh, few weeks on Lake Effect. Yeah, and, and not everything that we're getting in these survey responses are questions. Uh, people are sharing topics that they're interested in learning more about, like election integrity, how other voters are feeling, the candidates. Uh, the list is endless. Um, so through the survey, we're looking for trends in what people want to know about, and we're going to do stories based on those topics. 
uh, our coverage will be in response to what people are wanting to hear and know about, like Joy, your series on redistricting that you just mentioned, uh, which was inspired by questions we were receiving about the topic on our survey. So yeah, a lot of this is being driven by the survey and us directly asking the community, what are you thinking about right now? What's on your mind as we head into these elections? And what questions do you have for us? So it's trying to put the power in the voter and in the community's hands rather than in the politician's or in the media's hands. So we want to be of service to people. Um, and kind of thinking ahead to this year, our elections coverage in 2024, I'm hoping that we're going to hear more voter voices on the air, not just candidates or pollsters, but regular people. Sam and Joy, what are you hoping will come out of our elections coverage this year? <laughs> well, this may be asking too much, but I do want to shoot for the moon and say, that I hope Milwaukee isn't just a spot candidates pay lip service to during an election year before disappearing until 2028. Um, I want to see candidates address issues that you all are asking about on the campaign trail, of course, but especially when they're in office. You know, I want to see direct lines between the issues that you all are telling us about um, that are important to you this year and the choices that elected officials make once they are actually in office. I really want people to feel comfortable when they walk into the voting booth, like they have a handle on what these elections are, who these candidates are, and, and they feel like they're making an informed choice. You know, I hope that we're able to give people real insight into why our politics are the way they are and and ultimately how all of us can work either within these systems or change them when necessary. And really, all this work depends on hearing from people in the community. So if you live in Wisconsin, we want to hear from you. You don't have to live in Milwaukee. You don't have to have voted before. You don't have to have voted for any particular candidate. We really want to hear from everyone about what's on your mind ahead of the elections. What questions do you have? And you can tell us that by filling out our survey. There's a link to it at wuwm.com. And we're looking forward to hearing from you, from as many people as possible. That was WUWM's Emily Files, speaking with Lake Effect Sam Woods and myself. We talked about our approach to elections coverage this year. And you can find our mission statement and an FAQ about our elections coverage at WUWM.com. As you heard, we're asking you to fill out our election survey to help guide our coverage. You can also find a link to that at wuwm.com. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 10 minutes, we'll bring you some reading recommendations for books written by Black authors. But first, we'll learn about the upcoming Lunar New Year through a new show at UWM's Planetarium. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The Lunar New Year begins this Saturday and ends on February 20th. This year marks the Year of the Dragon, and people all over the world will be celebrating the arrival of spring marked by many traditions. UW-Milwaukee's Manfred Olson Planetarium is celebrating the Lunar New Year with a program including indoor stargazing and a presentation on preparing a traditional Lunar New Year celebration. There's a lot of work that goes into preparing the planetarium programs, and Lake Effect's astronomy contributor Jean Creighton doesn't do it all on her own. She has a team of production students. Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski speaks with Creighton and production student Jordan Lascala to learn more about how they've worked together on the upcoming Lunar New Year program. Jean, you've been the director of the Manfred Olson Planetarium for quite some time, and I'm sure a lot has changed in your tenure. And today we're mixing it up a bit to highlight the talented people that you work with, including production students. So can you share the various ways that students have been involved in your work on campus? Thank you for that great question, Audrey. It's quickly apparent that it's not possible to do all the things that you would like to do by yourself, nor should you. There are many talented students on campus who bring such great ideas that I really don't know what I did without them. We do have people who present some of our shows, especially birthday parties, uh, but the skill that I need most are designers and producers. So people who can use fancy software to make you know, the kind of graphics that help us explain the science or whatever we're, we're talking about. So how do you find your team? Uh, I get lucky sometimes. <laughs> we advertise it and we also have a word of mouth. One of the things that I think is great is that some students come to the planetarium for an event and then when they see the application materials, they think, wait, wait, I want to work there. So Jordan, you're one of the production students that works with Jean. Can you share a bit about your role at the planetarium and how you initially got involved? Yeah, so I initially got involved, like Jean said, like I also got involved through luck. Um, I was just going to one of the student orientation things like the first couple weeks of school where there were like resources that students can access um, at the student union. And I just saw that they were hiring for the planetarium and I was like, oh, I really like space. So I looked into that and I saw that they were looking for people who could lead some production and design aspects. And I was like, this kind of combines my two favorite things, which is art and film and astronomy being a physics major. So I was very excited about that. And so part of my role in the planetarium is I help with design assets. I like edit photos and images like we put together posters for upcoming events and I also help put together slideshows that we will show later in the planetarium and the other things that I'm involved with is a lot of team involved things such as like going to rehearsals giving feedback to my coworkers, and receiving feedback and also going to meetings for planning future events so there's a lot of kind of individual aspects and also a lot of team aspects, which I really enjoy both. That sounds great. And it seems like not only does it align with your personal interests, but your studies as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really encouraged me to continue my studies in astronomy. 
So I'd love to talk a bit about what goes into producing and designing these astronomy programs at the planetarium. This month, you have a program all about the Lunar New Year. So let's use this as an example. Can you both share with me how you work as a team to bring the presentation and the visual elements together? We start with an idea. And in this case, we wanted to celebrate the Lunar New Year because often people don't realize that many holidays are connected to celestial events, either the lunar cycle or the solar cycle or some combination of both. So that's one thing. We all love celebrations. So if we can combine the two, then obviously that's a winning ticket. After we get the idea, then we start looking for information and in this case, we consulted with a person who I know well, uh, who is Chinese, grew up in China. She's an artist, she's a photographer, and she's also a scientist interested in traditional celebrations of China. So she seemed to be the perfect person to give us some of the raw material to work with. So she puts together some images or ideas. She's willing to both to help us learn. And then she tells Jordan, here are some images. Here are some key words. You go and look it up. You see what you can find, maybe a better picture, a higher resolution, or a video that then Jordan can edit or cut to find music or dancing or some other element that really does benefit from video. Jordan, I'd love to hear about when you take the reins for your process. Yeah, um, I definitely couldn't have done it without everyone's help in the planetarium, especially Miss Poo. She was such a great insight. Um, I learned a lot about the Lunar New Year and the processes. She's been providing lots of photos and videos that she really enjoys, as well as like firsthand experiences of what all the festivals and celebrations look like. And it's also really helpful getting we like have weekly meetings for production and that's where we get a lot of feedback, which is really helpful, um, especially because this is my first time creating like a keynote from scratch. And yeah, I definitely would not be able to do it without everyone's help at the planetarium. Jordan, can you share a bit yeah. more about what kind of images you've been working with? What elements of this show like really sparked your inspiration and like what kind of programs you use to put things together? Walk us through kind of like an afternoon based on this project. Sure, yeah. So um, I got a lot of photos from uh, Miss Pooh. She was very helpful. Um, there were lots of photos of like the festivals that she enjoyed, the food, like cultural photos too. And I've been looking at a lot of our old shows, like kind of looking like how we make things move, like what movies we include and uh, one of my favorite parts about putting the show together is kind of creating little animations with everything involved. That usually gets people's attention, I think, like just seeing those little um, special effects. That's been really fun to put together. I use Photoshop and Keynote. Those are the two big things. And uh, YouTube also. The videos that I've been finding were, there are a lot of like the festival videos and like the lantern shows and also the dragon dance, which um, just looking at those, like they were so, they were so beautiful, like space and astronomy itself are very beautiful, undoubtedly, but it was, yeah, it's just so fascinating learning about different cultures and just all the beauty that comes with it. 
let's talk about both aspects of this beauty spectrum, right? Um, can you both share a bit about, Gene, what you're presenting in the projector that shows the stars on the planetarium's roof and how that complements what Jordan is putting together through the computer projector? Well, we're hoping to offer a complete package. So we're hoping to almost literally transport ourselves to China so that we can hear about the preparations for the Lunar New Year, but also imagine that we can pop outside and see what the sky looks like. To the extent possible, we're gonna try and show constellations in Chinese terms. Unfortunately, around the world, a lot of that is lost and pretty much people have adopted the official constellations, but where possible to make those connections, we will. At the very least, we'll be able to tell stories, uh, or Pooh will tell stories from her seeing stars when she was a girl. One of the things I learned that I didn't know about Lunar New Year is that it is not a, you know, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, that's it. It's many, many days of preparation. And I also was impressed with some of the rules and customs that follow the new year. So there's an official day that you're not supposed to see anybody. You're not supposed to do anything, which gives people a moment to kind of decompress from all this socializing and take a moment to breathe. And I thought we need, <laughs> we need one of those too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that definitely was one of the most interesting things I learned about Lunar New Year, how it, runs for like a couple of weeks and like every day kind of has something specific you're supposed to celebrate or something you're supposed to do like whether that be like going shopping or cooking the meat or one example is the mothers of families go back to visit their parents and I was like that's yeah that's really cool like it's very different from how I'm used to celebrating holidays and like you said Jean the lunar the calendar that they have uh Miss Pooh she sent me a photo of the lunar calendar and there's a couple things every month of the year where it's just like this is like wheat day or this is the start of the winter solstice and yeah it's just a very different type of calendar than what we're used to and it's really cool to learn that new perspective. I'm intrigued already just talking to you guys, and I'm sure the visuals back this up tenfold. So I want to thank you so much for joining me to talk about the work that you both do. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Jean Creighton is the director of the Manfred Olson Planetarium, and Jordan Lascala is one of the production students at the Planetarium. They joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to talk about the upcoming Lunar New Year program on February 7th. You can find more information about it at wuwm.com. at the beginning of Black History Month, and if you're looking to start a new book, Derek Handley has some recommendations for a few written by Black authors. Handley is an assistant professor of English at UW-Milwaukee. He joins former Lake Effect producer Mallory Chang to share three books that he thinks everyone should have on their shelves. 
The books that you picked, they range in genres from nonfiction, folklore, and historical fiction. What is the nonfiction pick? So I chose uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. Um, and it's the last book um, written in the last year of the life of Martin Luther King Jr. We're all familiar with his speeches. Unfortunately, he gets frozen in time especially with the I Have a Dream speech in 1963. But what some people may not know is, is Dr. King was a wonderful and beautiful writer, a premier public intellectual. And we get to sense in this book where his ideas and where his thoughts were about the civil rights movement and reflection looking back. And his thoughts about the growing impact of the of the Black Power movement. So I encourage people to read this book. Again, we often reduce him to to a phrase, I have a dream, or just one quote. But to get the full depth, the overall picture of Martin Luther King, I highly recommend this book. And just to tease out the book a little, with his last book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, what kinds of topics does he address in that period of time? Well, he talks about the role of government, what he thought, um, his thinking about the government at this time. He's thinking about the growing militarism of the country and our role in the, in the Vietnam War. But he also addresses poverty. And um, so we see a a economic philosophy is being revealed in in this book and it's not just uh, black poverty but white poverty as as well so it's it's a very interesting look and uh, insight uh, to him but again with a book you know you're you're reading you're getting direct access to his words and his thoughts and uh, i highly encourage folks to read this book he definitely was as we all are as humans, a very complicated person with a lot of thoughts. And you also have a pick that is a part of the African and African-American folklore genre by also a very well-known Black author in our country's literature history. And who are they and what's their book about? It's It touches on a theme, a major theme in African-American folklore, and it's Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Again, we are very familiar with Toni Morrison. Perhaps her most famous book is Beloved. But for some people, reading Toni Morrison can be difficult. But Song of Solomon was, for me personally, really her first book that converted me to being a Toni Morrison fan. I mean, the plot is a little bit more linear than some of her other books. And it's drawing from this theme of the flying African. And I don't want to say too much about without giving it away, but flying is this thing in a relationship that African Americans uh, may have psychologically about escaping some of the the issues or the conditions or the perils of this of this country during this time. So and again, Morrison is just a beautiful writer. And with Every sentence that she crafts um, has a distinct purpose. And so this is 
you know, Toni Morrison as being one of my favorite writers. I think if you want to begin reading Toni Morrison, I think this is a first good book. This was her third book, and it was published in the late uh, 1970s, but I think it's a good first book to begin with. I definitely do remember reading Beloved in high school, and that was my introduction to Toni Morrison. And how did you how did you do with that book when you first started reading it? Honestly, as a 15, 16 year old, it was hard. I'm not even gonna lie, it was hard. But then once I got through it and managed to figure out her prose and figure out, okay, the tempo and the rhythm of her writing, I'm like, okay, I get it. It takes a minute, it takes a second. Right, it takes a minute. I tell my students, I said, look, when you begin reading Toni Morrison, you can't have any distractions. You gotta be in a quiet room quiet space, maybe maybe meditate a little bit to get into that mindset because she's going to make you work as a reader. And once you get into her world, once you start beginning to understand this universe, a universe that's centered on African-Americans and African-American experience, then you begin to understand. And then you begin to see the universality of the things in which she is writing about. Toni Morrison has once said, there's all these stories that are not being told. And that was a motivation for her to become a writer, to tell the stories that were not being told. You can definitely tell that she was an educator while also being a writer. Absolutely. And finally, Derek, you have a historical fiction recommendation on this list of books. What is this one about? Who is this by? Again, the same theme. We're familiar with this author. Um, it's the book is called The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. You know, this is his first fiction book, and it's a historical fiction taking a look at slavery and the Underground Railroad and the escape from slavery. Also dealing with some magical realism, if you will. And I thought for a first novel, I thought it was very well done. And Coates is is just a good writer. He hearkens from the tradition of, of, of James Baldwin. Um, and I think that's what made his columns very well read And when he was a columnist for The Atlantic. Um, of course, his big essay, The Case for Reparations, Mass Incarceration. But I think one of the reasons why those articles and that information resonated with people was just the craft of his writing. He is uh, simply a, a, a really good writer. You know, you can see the research that he's put in to tell this story, a story that we might be familiar with, but telling it in a, a very different way. Could you give the little tease about the overall theme and plot of this book? Sure. So The Water Dancer focuses on a protagonist and his life in slavery, simply put. And what was slavery like at this time? as well as those who are trying to escape from slavery. And then what happens with people, or one perspective of what happens with people when they become free, right? What is What are their responsibility to helping others who they left behind? And how can they put their, their gifts to work to help others? So, and there is another character that, I don't want to give away too much, that folks may recognize historically as who is being part of the Underground Railroad and a, and a major figure. In general, as history, we know the stories, we know the history, we know the facts, 
but with with fiction we can go a little bit deeper we can go into the into the minds of the people who are um living this and experiencing it and seeing it from their perspective that these people that they were people they were not just slaves that they were people who were enslaved and how do you handle that how do you handle that condition on a day-to-day basis and how do you try to get away from that i mean slavery was not a passive institution for those who are enslaved it is a constant state of war and so so any books that both nonfiction and fiction can help us to think about those things and to help us understand those things i think is very important there are so many books um if the if the listeners <laughs> could could see my office they could they would see the shelves all the books on on, on my bookshelf you're an english professor through and through there's a lot of books you have like four or five bookcases full of books <laughs> And I'm sure it was really hard and difficult to put together this list. And I really appreciate uh, you coming on to Lake Effect today, Derek, to talk about your three picks. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Derek Handley is an assistant professor of English at UW-Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang last year. In about 10 minutes, we'll explore a few Wisconsin caves that you can visit around the state. But first, we'll tell you about a new takeout spot specializing in fried Asian fare. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. A new takeout spot has opened just off Kinnikinick at the northern edge of Bayview. Todd, I Believe I Can Fry is dedicated to fried Asian fare, spanning Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Thai cuisine. The restaurant had a soft opening last week. WUWM's Lena Tran checked it out and spoke with the owner of the new spot, May Leo Tracoon. How has it been going so far? It was an incredible soft opening for us. We didn't expect to get that beefy, but yeah, everyone came out to support. And what have people been saying so far? They're saying the food was really good. That's what I really need to hear from them, and they said that. (laughs) (laughs) What were some of the favorite dishes or popular things that people were coming to get? Um, they come to get wings, for sure, and the sauce, like the most popular sauces here, like um, soy garlic, mango habanero, uh, so BBQ, K-spice, and uh, tom yum powder, and the Thai lard powder, and also um, the cheesy gyoza, the cheesy beef bukoki gyoza, and takoyaki for sure, and uh, ika queso, which is the squid tentacles. Awesome. How did you get to this moment? Can you talk about where the idea for Todd came from? This idea or concept of the takeout restaurant, we came up from the pandemic. We're seeing like it's really hard to find people to work in the food industry 
and I worked for the restaurant for many years and I want to continue my um, restaurant path. So it was like, what would I come up with the idea of having a restaurant myself and not having much of people or uh, staff to work in the space. So I just like, let's do the carry out, but just fry food and like uh, chicken wings, but Asian style. We, we were like brainstorming with the team and I was like, should we do the wings only or should we do other things that could be fried? And we, yep, we came up with the wings and Asian street food that just fry, that be easier. For the small place and like one spot, like grab and go with drinks and um, beer and wine that can take it as a to go to. How did you decide on these different items? Like, where are you drawing inspiration from? For movies, I like to eat myself. So I, I try a couple of things, like takoyaki, wings. But I never had fried squid tentacles. And I saw, like, that on the TV or the movie. But I don't know if just, like, me or everyone else do that. But when I see food... In the movie, I wanted to try or really want to have that right now when I'm watching the movie or watching TV. And that's like inspired to have food in my place. So it all started with the fried squid? Yeah, fried squid. And I love cheese curds. And I try like many types of cheese curds so far. And I, I like the one that we have on here on our menu. Has it long been your dream to have a spot of your own? Not at the beginning of I work in a restaurant, yeah, but since I work uh, in a restaurant for Rice and Roll for eight years, I was between become a, like a, having my own place as a bakery because I love to bake, but my partner, um, he likes to cook. So it was like, um, but bakery, like I've seen many bakers in Milwaukee already and we, like we don't have like Asian style street food or like Asian style um, chicken wings here much in Milwaukee. And I was like, maybe food is more, more selling for the community. So we decided to do the food instead of the bakery. What is the story behind the name? So since we sell all the fry food, fry in Thai um, language, we call Todd. No one really know what Todd means. Everyone thinks that this place owned by the person named Todd, but it actually not, which is, it mean fry. And we um, has the, the phrase that would need to describe the word Todd. So um, we came up with the name, I believe I can fry, changing the fly word to fry as like a play word with it as a definition of Todd. When did you kind of decide to dedicate like your work life to food? Growing up with food or restaurant from my family in Thailand and here too. My mom she works at the restaurant before and she has her own restaurant back in Thailand. And so everything that I've grew up ever since surrounding with food and restaurant. But I was not 
interested becoming a restaurant owner or um, like a food and beverage industrial. I use, um, I actually graduated from pre-pharmacy school because I at first wanted to be um, a pharmacist. But then since I started working in a restaurant, it made me turn to a food and beverage um, industrial instead of going to the um, healthcare industry. Because it made you happier or as familiar? Yeah, yeah. So not much stress as um, pharmacy. I believe I can fly. That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with May Leo Tracoon, the owner of Todd, I Believe I Can Fry. Spread my wings and fly away. I believe I can soar. I see me running through that open door. I believe I can fly. I believe I can fly. Wisconsin is home to more than 400 caves, each with their own unique features and formations. Writer Kevin Revolinsky explored some of them for Milwaukee Magazine, and he joins me now to share a few of those picks. Kevin, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me on. Now, I don't think of Wisconsin as having a lot of caves, but of course we have many of them. But uh, for people who may not end up in caves all that often, what are your top tips for visiting one? You have to dress for a cold temperature, first off. It's usually somewhere in the 50s underground. It doesn't matter the season. It's, it's going to be in the 50s, so that's kind of neat. But in the middle of the summer, you're going to want to have pants and a jacket. and um, A lot of them are wet. They drip on you. So you might want to take that into consideration. Uh, most of the ones that people visit are commercial caves so they've got stairs and railings for some of the trickier parts so you're not crawling around like uh, you know I guess a true spelunking adventure but um, you probably don't want to wear clothes that might get dirty because you can brush up against things but there's also the matter of um, the white nose uh, syndrome for the bats so some of the caves may have warnings about you know, after you've been in the cave, you should make sure that your clothes and boots are completely clean so that you don't spread it and you don't bring it to the next cave. That's kind of an unusual tip now in, in recent years since that uh, disease has, has kind of devastated the, the bat population. Sure. So let's get into this list of caves. Uh, we have the first one on here, uh, one probably most people know about, uh, Cave of the Mounds. What makes this so popular? Its accessibility is it's very beautiful. It's easy to get to off the highway near Blue Mounds. It's a national landmark, as a matter of fact, and it's it's about 750 feet in. And uh, like I said, you don't have to crawl around in these kind of caves. So it's it's nice to be able to take uh, kids in there without worrying about somebody falling down a hole or something. Some of the colors there are unusual, and that's the effect of special bacteria that leaves stains on, on the rock. So that's, you know, I think the attractiveness of that particular cave. Now, uh, the second cave I've actually heard of as well, I will say in my mind's eye, this is like a cave made of glass, but I know that that's not accurate. Uh, It is called Crystal Cave, and it is, in fact, the longest cave in the state. Yeah, they they claim that at about one mile. It's deeper than underground than Cave of the Mounds, maybe almost double. And um, it has crystals in there that, like, 
you know, quartz kind of crystals, sugar-like kind of formations that are on the wall, and that's where it got its name. It's also a destination in itself because it has a lot of activities above ground. You know, the caves want to keep people coming back and uh, entertain the kids, so they have things like uh, mini golf there and some uh, trails and such. Now, the next one we're going to look at, it's in, I believe, the Driftless region of Wisconsin. If you haven't been there, you should really check it out. It is oddly very un-Wisconsin-like for a part of Wisconsin. That's an odd thing to say, but uh, <laughs> it is also home to Eagle Cave. Yeah, and um, to be clear, I think all three of the ones that I'm thinking of here that, that we named are in the Driftless area. That Those are places that didn't get you know run over by glaciers. Part of the reason these things still exist, I suppose. But yeah, Eagle Cave has translucent rocks. So um, it's called onyx. I always thought that that was something that was just typically black. I don't know where I got that. I guess there is a black onyx, but the the minerals allow the light to get through. And um, it looks a little bit like agates. It's another old cave, um, show cave or commercial cave. It's been around for a long time. This is unusual in that a lot of kids have camped in it. So you, you get groups like Boy Scout groups or school groups, Girl Scouts that go there and camp for the night underground, which, you know, some might find that uh, an awesome adventure. Others might think, ew, cold <laughs> and damp. But um, I think as a kid, it's got to be a real treat. For sure. Now, I believe the next couple of caves that we're going to look at, they're actually, I think, both chains of caves and in a slightly different part of the state. Uh, we'll start with Maribel Caves. It's a it's a chain of caves that you can explore. As someone with limited cave experience, it's hard for me to conceptualize what that looks like. Can you can you explain kind of how a chain of caves work? Sure. It, it's They form typically from water dissolving minerals, and it depends on the layout of those minerals, how those caves would be shaped and the, and, the, and the amount of water that flows through them. So essentially, you've got multiple entries in, in the case of Maribel. And this is kind of a, I, I like to think of it as a public cave in process. Uh, it's not entirely open to the public. You can't just walk up and go into all of it. You can in some places. Other parts of the of the system have gates over them, so you need to go to the, the, the county park website and schedule an appointment where volunteers uh, will guide you into these caves. But this is going to be something where you're probably going to get dirty and you might do a little crawling around. I've seen that they they take volunteers on certain days to go in and clear some of the rubble out because parts of the caves were actually filled with uh, glacial till after the ice age. So they're they're removing that rock to see just how big these caves are. So that's, I think, kind of exciting. You know, very different from, you know, just walking up and paying a few dollars and going down in a cave with steps. Sure. Now, when you say glacial till, what does that mean? Ah, that's the rubble and sand and, and deposits left behind by the, the last retreat of the glaciers. I never liked the word retreat. It sounded like it literally moved backwards, but it was melting. And all that what runoff was leaving uh, sediments here and there uh, throughout the state, which is called drift. And uh, that's why we say driftless area. That's the area that didn't have any of those melting glaciers. Now, the Maribel Caves are in a different part than the driftless region. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's over by Manitowoc. So not far off of uh, Lake Michigan there. So 
hence the glacial till. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's also part of the Niagara escarpment, and that's uh, kind of an unusual geological formation that stretches from Wisconsin all the way to Niagara Falls, that's the name, Niagara. And what it is, is some very hard rock like dolomite that was underlaid with a softer rock. And so what happens with this large expanse of rock is the underside of it erodes at the edges and undercuts that hard rock, which then kind of cracks off and, and erodes that way. So you get these, these cliff edges. A lot of Door County is like that. And you can see like ledge view in some places up and around Green Bay area where you can actually see it off the highway. You see a ridge that's stretching along as you're driving. So the final cave that we'll look at is, again, in another part of the state. It's in Door County, and it's called Cave Point. Right. And and as I just said with the escarpment, this is another example of that uh, type of rock. This county park is actually nestled into uh, Whitefish Dunes State Park. When you go there, you can see that the lake has carved out, eroded underneath that harder rock. And so you've got all these caves alongside the water that the, the waves can roll into and kind of make a little thundering sound or or uh, throw up jets of water through little cracks in the rock. You know, very similar. It's different rock, I think, than uh, the Apostle Islands. That's more sandstone, but um, similar in, in terms of the uh, of the formation of it. But yeah, this is just right out. You just pull right up to it and there's a parking area and you can walk to the edge and look down over those caves. Uh, paddlers will go on excursions along the shoreline and kind of duck into those as well. They're not very deep, um, as I said, uh, with all the caves not necessarily being, you know, 100, 200, 900 feet underground. Uh, this, these get daylight, especially uh, when the sun rises. Um, they're facing east, so it's kind of a neat area. Lights up the water and you can look down and the crystal green water and the, the waves rolling into those caves. It's quite extraordinary. So unlike some of the other caves, this is something that you're not exactly climbing into, maybe maybe paddling into. That That is correct. I have seen people jump off the cliffs into the water. I don't know if that's encouraged or allowed, <laughs> but um, the water is, is deep enough where it's carved out that cave. So I guess people do swim into there. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing all of these fun caves to explore. Uh, Hopefully some of our listeners will head out and uh, check out some parts of the state they may not have seen before. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for having me on. Kevin Revelinski is a writer whose piece on Wisconsin caves was featured in Milwaukee Magazine last summer. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll bring you the latest on redistricting efforts in Wisconsin, plus tell you what you can expect to see on your ballot in the February 20th primary election. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.